Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS, and back from her swanning around in Bath Festival, meeting celebrities, taking the waters, now sporting a haircut straight out of the Ramones, is Thea Leonard Duzzi. I gave you that joke myself. I did, exactly, but I felt that's why I could do it. Because I think if I just out of nowhere started saying you look like a, a New York punk rocker, <laughs> uh, then I think it'd be offensive, but... I was able to reappropriate That's it. my style. I'm channeling my next holiday. Where are you going? New York. Oh, oh your next, when's that? <laughs> uh, Friday. When's your next literary festival? Tomorrow. <laughs> so you're going to Hay? Yes, I'm going to Hay on Y to talk to Barney Norris and Emma Healy. And I've just come back from Hay on Y. It's a tag team. It's a complicated tag team Yeah, operation. And actually, um, it's been lovely. And um, it was, a re- honestly, I'm quite a cynical person. And I feel like I'm armoured in cynicism uh, and I kind of have, I sort of walk around with a pre-flinch where I kind of imagine sort of I need to flinch. And actually, I just wandered around and so many people were there who just love books. They Broke like, through the chinks in your armour. And they like the TLS, they like books. They like, of course like, they, they like the I know, TLS. I know, I know, but you know, you don't think of these things. Anyway, I went to three, I did three events and there were 1,700 people at each event and on a bank holiday, it was pretty wet in some parts of it. As well, it's and Wales. Were, it's Wales, yeah, exactly. And it's in Wales. It's a long way away, unless you live in Wales, and some of them did. But some of them clearly come from quite far away. Uh, and I just found the whole thing almost magical. There, <laughs> wipe that tear from your eye. Well, have a lovely time. Uh, if you listen to this podcast and like it, please do rate and review us on iTunes. And if you listen to us and don't like it, then then you probably should just stop listening to us. Uh, there's a world elsewhere. Go and enjoy yourselves. Coming up on the show this week, how do you translate the untranslatable, especially when it comes as the word of God? It's an issue of ethics and aesthetics. Eric Ormsby ponders the Quran in other languages. Our features editor, and as you will know if you read the New York Times piece on the TLS this week, our minister for fun, Ros Deneen, has been talking to the winner of this year's Man International Booker Prize, Olga Tokarczuk. Thea? You just laugh when you say it. You're on the right it. tracks. You yeah, should have just... Go on, I'm struggling. Go on, say it. Olga Tokarczuk. Olga Tokarczuk. I nearly got there. Olga Tokarczuk. You can hear the interview in full shortly and we'll be paying tribute to the great Philip Roth who died last week. Writer Ben Markovitz, who teaches Roth to aspiring writers, will share his thoughts. 
Last Wednesday, on the 22nd of May 2018, Philip Roth died. He was 85. He was also one of the lingering greats of American prose, one of the central figures of 20th century writing in English, an author who was a rare combination of the lyrical, political and darkly comical. He wrote about being American, being Jewish and, this is key, just being. He also, in common with his contemporaries, one thinks about Updike here, wrote quite a lot about sex from the male point of view. Roth actually wrote more novels than his much-lauded white male contemporaries like Bellow and Updike. And unlike the latter, he was not harmed by any late phase of canon-weakening misfires. Although, and we may get to this, I think at least two of the last three novellas he wrote were some way from his best. Philip Roth will be remembered for his confident debut, Goodbye Columbus, in 1959, which was printed in full in the Paris Review. For Portnoy's Complaint in 1969, that graphic novel about a lust-ridden, mother-addicted Jewish bachelor, which in many ways looked ahead in theme, tone and scabrous humour to so many of his later books. He'll be remembered for Nathan Zuckerman, his writerly alter ego, who pops up in many of his greatest novels, including The Human Stain and American Pastoral, and for producing books which achieve the astounding, almost impossible feat of being rude, funny, self-conscious and beautiful. Benjamin Markovitz, the writer and teacher of Roth, has written a remarkable piece on this great American novelist and joins Thea and me now. Ben, how are you doing? I'm all right. Nice to be here. How will you remember Roth? When he died, what, did, what, what, what immediately did your mind turn to? Well, as I wrote in the piece, my, my mind turned to my, my dad. So my dad grew up about a decade after Roth, but in a similar part of the country, the sort of Jewishness, the sort of Jewish childhood that Roth talks about was my father's childhood, too. And was there an authenticity? Would your dad recognize the, 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 the world that Roth was describing? Yeah, Mom, you know, it's funny. I never saw my dad read Roth. I think he read a lot of it before I was born. I'm a, a half Jew, so my mother is a German Christian. And as a kid, I had always associated the German side of my family with the literary side because, I don't know, they were slightly posher and the Jewish side of my family seemed more interested in law and business. And it never really occurred to me till much later that my father's childhood was really great material, that the sorts of things that he came up with, the sorts of experiences he'd had of America were just incredibly rich. Um, I mean, I can give small examples of the sort of things my dad says He's actually just been to stay with me, so I've had reminders of him. Uh, he had a shit list when I was a kid. Did, you, did your parents have a shit list? What's a shit list? A shit list is when you've pissed him off. So it's a list of the people who have pissed him off. And as a kid, you didn't really want to be on his shit list, but you've also heard other people make it onto his shit list. Uh, colleagues who had annoyed him. It was a long shit list. Was it, and, was it in written form up on the fridge? No, he just kept an empty track. <laughs> And it never struck me when I was a kid that this was great stuff. You know, I, you know you're slightly embarrassed by your, your parents when you're a child. But when I read Roth, I read that sort of natural energy in it, that sort of anger. I mean, anger is not the only thing that's, that's part of it. A sort of appetite for experience that hasn't been over-refined by literature and the arts. Kind of a naturalness. Are we sort of saying there's a kind of heft of naturalness about, about the subject matter and, and how he ended up doing it? Yeah, I mean, he obviously was an enormously skilled writer who knew a lot about literature and the arts, but it, it hadn't thinned the blood with him. And I think that's part of the appeal of writers like Roth and, and, and Bellow. Another thing, actually, I thought of when, when, when Roth died is a letter that Bellow wrote to him 
Bellow had gone through some kind of uh, grief. I don't know if it was the end of a marriage or somebody's death, and Roth had suggested he go to a concert in London. I think they were in London. And Bellow thanked Roth for the invitation, if that's what it was, and, and wrote to him, there's not, there's not enough art to cover the deadly griefs with. Almost, but it's never enough. I think that's, that's a, a great line. It also catches something about what Roth could do, that you felt like this is more than just art. And yet he was a self-conscious writer. The thing that strikes me, I suppose, when I think about Roth is an awful lot of literature that I don't like, that very postmodern writing about writing about writing. Right, right. He ends up, I mean, quite a lot of his novels are are doing that. You know, that's what Zuckerman is. And yet it never feels that it has the sort of sterility of that approach, does it? Yeah, I mean, and he writes campus novels too. I haven't read every novel that Roth has written. I think, as you suggest, some are greater than others. There are books like Deception, where I, I feel like the game playing takes over. But you're right. I, you know, partly, I, I'm the child of American academics, and when I first read Roth, what I heard was just conversations around my dinner table. <laughs> and, and, and so partly, I guess, my response was, it's true that, that he writes books about writers writing books, but these are people, too. Um, and he could have written books about, I don't know, bus drivers driving buses or lawyers doing law, and he, he's done that as well. He just knows this scene and the human qualities of it, and it doesn't just feel like a game. What were the sort of the main kind of gear-changing novels, if you will, in, in his in his oeuvre? Because one, one of the ones that you mentioned, which I mentioned, which I find interesting, is Sabbath's Theatre. He described yeah. that as his own favourite, and it's your least favourite. It is my least favourite. Roth's career seems like this long argument against niceness. He hated niceness. He said things like, uh, niceness is even worse in writers than it is in other people. I suspect that if you met him, I don't know, if, did you ever meet him? No. That he actually was probably pretty nice and funny and witty and, and could be genial too. I actually like niceness. I think li- niceness is, is underrated. It, it, it makes relationships work. It makes parenting work. It's important. But I can feel the appeal of his side of the argument. He thinks that niceness gets in the way of honesty. It gets in the way of experience. It's corrupting the way cliche is corrupting, and he fought hard against it. So that, I think Sabbath theater is just too deliberately nasty for me. And I actually, I don't mind if someone's going to be nasty so long as they don't tell me that they do it in the spirit of Dionysus. <laughs> like if you're going to masturbate into your friend's daughter's knickers, then just do it because that's what you want to do. Don't tell me you're doing it out of some kind of theatrical display. Yeah. Well, I, I found this. I mean, we'll get to the sex actually, because I think it is kind of important, especially as his legacy is judged. I found the books at the end, those 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 very late novellas, particularly two. I think um, Indignation was one, particularly The Humbling, which has a threesome yeah. involving the famous green dildo, and it right. got to the point, and it was kind of a, gre- a a very old man writing what amounted to a sexual fantasy about a very old man and two women, right uh, and. I think he avoided this generally because Updike fell into a sort of slough of despond when it came to, to the last part of his career. And Roth didn't. But did you think there's a wobble at the end? Do you think some of those, those novellas at the end were a bit slight, a bit too fixated so on I, sex and death? Uh, the last novella I read was Everyman, which I actually reviewed for you guys. I started Exit Ghost and gave up on it. When, when Roth is great, you get the sense that this incredible flow of articulacy and anger and energy has underneath it this very complicated uh, substructure. 
And I just didn't get that sense with Exit Ghost. So there may have been a, a weakening at the end, or maybe if I came back to it, I'd be completely persuaded by it. What I find most interesting about Roth is actually the, the transition from the early to the middle period. I don't know if you've read Goodbye Columbus recently. Yes, but I it, did recently. And, and I was I was so pleasantly surprised, even though I had read it before, if that makes any sense. So what, what surprised you? Um, I think just the, the naturalness of the, the relate and, and, and in fact... Reading your piece, you know how you talk about one of the main themes being business, the doing of business, right. the how, how sons take over businesses and, and all of that sort of stuff. I, I was really pleased at how consistent Goodbye Columbus felt reading it back in light right. of, of things like that. So sport, he's so good on sport. I'd forgotten how good the sporting scenes were and how yeah. sport sporting becomes a subtext for the niceness that you talk about. I suppose what surprised me was just how how well everything seemed to come together and how you could see that it had all been there from the very beginning. Yeah, all the themes are there, right? I mean, yeah. even the argument with niceness is there because yeah. Neil Klugman sort of starts out like a nice kid. Yeah, when he's playing with the sister, the young sister Julie, and he sort of has to let her win. And right. he says, oh, I, I don't know, I think I let her win. And, and he really wants to marry her, at least he thinks he wants to marry her. But then he brings in the diaphragm yeah. because he doesn't have the guts for any response from her that isn't hallelujah. <laughs> And then, and then suddenly a little bit of nastiness creeps into it, right? The whole scene with the diaphragm is kind of nasty. Mm. Making, making this, uh, this woman you're dating go to New York, lie to her parents, just for the sake of something so that you can exert your will over her. In what way then? Because you mentioned Everyman. You said that was, I think, the last, the last of Philip Roth's books that you read all the way through and enjoyed, I think. So how, you mentioned yeah. that as a kind of a, counter, a counterpoint to Goodbye Columbus. So one of the things that I really like about a Roth novel, and he seems to have a completely firm grip on what constitutes one of his stories. You know, you get a lot of novels who write very well. Actually, Bellow is one of them. He goes on riffs here or there. The riffs are great, but you don't really get the sense that he knows what cause he's advancing. And in pretty much every Roth novel I've read, even the ones I don't like, you get the sense of somebody who is in utter control of what cause he's advancing, where the plot is going, what he's explaining, why he's explaining it. And every man... You know, if you're going to write a novel about what it's like to get old, he takes as his subject almost the simplest thing, the medicalization of old age. This is what you do battle with every day. The medicines, the medical decisions, the decisions about hospitals and doctors, all those things you have to go through, that is his subject. And it's incredibly simple and clear and difficult, and he makes it very moving. I want to talk but about the, the cultural reception of, of Roth now, Ben, if that's okay, because yeah. we mentioned that the sex bit and the nastiness. I think nastiness is actually a really good way of doing it you know he's a writer he's a he's he was a successful middle-aged writer who wrote about sex seen through a very male gaze that feels culturally awkward now i suspect it wasn't awkward in the 70s and 80s and, and 90s and it is now do you think that will affect his legacy his ongoing reception of his novels i think it could i hope it it doesn't partly because i feel like the sort of point he's trying to make is more important now than it may have been even when he he made it, this argument against niceness, that you can't have intimacy with niceness. I mean, as I said before, I'm I'm ambivalent about this point. It's not like I totally buy it, but he makes the case so eloquently that you can't have real intimacy or understanding with the sort of niceness controls that I think you're partly referring to. But that's a kind of also, uh, at its uh, taken another way, as a kind of manifesto for brutishness. Yes, and, and 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 it's obvious that a man would come up with such a manifesto for brutishness because that is a justification for him uh, aggressively copping off with someone. 
I think that's true. And in Sabbath theater, that's what it's about. I don't think I wouldn't want to reduce him entirely to sex. Uh, a beautiful book he wrote is, is Patrimony about his memoir of his father. And you just have to read the first paragraph of that to see how clear an eye Roth had for the stuff that matters in people's lives. Now, sex is one of those things that matters in, in people's lives. I think it tends to matter less than uh, than the movies want to tell us and most books want to tell us and maybe even than Roth wants to tell us. But politics matters in Roth, too, and ambition matters, and people's growing distance from their childhood matters, and the generation gap matters. So I don't think he's just the writer of sex. And in all those other aspects of life, he has an incredibly tender heart for those problems, you know, the distance from your father as your culture shifts. See, what do you think as a um, as a woman? Because when Roth, I remember tweeting about this and saying oh, he's part of he's part of that culture, very male culture of Updike and, and Bellow, and people were saying, why why is he not part of a culture of women? And the point was, he wasn't. The tradition he was writing in, the tradition of that great American mid-century writer, was a very male one. Things are different now. Do you, do you think? Do you look at him differently? Has your perspective on him changed? Do you think? No, no. I mean, but what we're talking about now isn't 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 really new i mean he, we were talking people were talking about this around roth from the 60s he wrote uh, when she was good and that was the only novel that he he had a female protagonist in and he came under fire for that for for being reductive and uh, women are always trying to heal always trying to save or thwart men so uh, we're not talking about anything new it doesn't really change the way i think about him i think like ben i don't think of him primarily as a writer on or about sex it's more about class and yes that even even the jewishness i mean i think he said something along the lines of you know um you know he's being asked something like you know what is it to be a jewish american writer and he said jewishness uh, it's not that interesting i'm i'm an american writer i write american novels and it's true that 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 prism that we sort of when we choose to look at him through a prism that's only I don't know, that's only a small part of it. The, the risk would be to reduce it. And if you reduce it and you say, oh, he's a writer of that sort, of that male tradition, of whatever tradition, you miss out on the class struggle, the generational struggle, all of the other stuff that he does write so well. But rightly or wrongly, Ben, the politicising of writers and their status, whether it has always happened, feels to have found its particular cultural moment in the sun, doesn't it? that you can't have a conversation about a writer without first trying to establish their moral or political position in the world. You know, the truth is, I think you, you can't have a conversation about a famous writer. A lot of writers would love to be in the position where they're well-known enough to be politicized. Yeah. But I think the point about Roth and his women, the men aren't happy at all of this. And I, mm. and I understand that's not totally an excuse. One of the the books I sometimes teach is the opening scene to The Counterlife. I don't know if you've read yeah. it recently either of you not recently but i have read it the, the premise is again one of these totally simple roth premises uh nathan zuckerman's brother turns out at a routine checkup has a heart abnormality that requires treatment so far it it, it hasn't been symptomatic and he can either have surgery which might kill him or he can take a medicine which mostly has no side effects except that it might make you impotent and he's more or less happily married He's got a great position in society. He's a, a dentist. I think he's prosperous. He's also having an affair with one of the nurses in his office. And he takes the medicine. And it turns out he can't live with the side effect. He grows increasingly crazy and nasty and brutal trying to cope with this new sense of himself as non-sexual. And I think what makes it 
powerful Roth is that he's not having a torrid affair with his nurse. He's not even particularly in love with her. The marriage with the wife is fine. He's risking his life if he's going to have the operation for something so stupid. And Roth knows it's stupid, right? The, the thing that he's risking his life for is in order to continue having meaningless affairs. And yet it turns out to be so important to him. He's unable to live without this stupid thing that he contemplates having the operation. Now, in the hands of somebody else, his choice might have been made harder. You might have made it a problem in his marriage that he can't get it up anymore, or he's fallen in love with somebody who won't sleep with him or whatever it is. But Roth made this choice as stupid as possible so that you could see how stupid the force was that he was dealing with. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I can totally see that. J just finally, we have to go, but uh, people who are listening to this who haven't read much Roth want an entrance into the canon. What book would you point them in the direction of? I think Goodbye Columbus is... Start at the beginning. Great. Right at the beginning. And Zuckerman Unbound, I think, is a lot of fun as well. What do you guys think? Well, yeah. I was, yeah, was going to say Goodbye Columbus, obviously, but also American Pastoral. I, I yeah. really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think you should probably look at Portnoy's complaint relatively early on. And if you don't... I mean, cause I think you should, you don't, but that's a, that's a sort of a tester, I think. Yeah, if you don't like it, then I'm not sure... I mean, you might find other stuff, as you've been saying, but I still think that is probably distilled wrath, Portnoy's complaint, isn't it? I mean, that's definitely frantic wrath. <laughs> <laughs> Start at the beginning. Oh, so what, let's not overcomplicate things. You want to read the canon of wrath, <laughs> write the, read the novel he wrote in 1959 when he started writing. Uh, sure, that sounds good. He was great. I mean, I just want to say uh, again... I, I don't love all of his books. I don't love his point of view all the time, but he was great. Ben Markovitz. Agreed. Yeah, let's leave it at that. Ben Markovitz, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Last week, Olga Tokarczuk became the first Polish writer to win the Man Booker International Prize, granted to the best work of translated fiction published in the previous 12 months, for her curious book, Flights. Reviewing it in the TLS last year, Amanda DeMarco described how the work, though a novel, is really composed of stories and observations about travel, broadly conceived, intermingling with fact and fiction and taking theme, not narrative, as its guiding star. It contains, DeMarco goes on, countless airports and trains, sundry hotels, hostels and sleeping bags. One city starts to sound like the next, and that's the point. This is a book that could only be written in an era when travel is cheap and easy, when authenticity, foreignness and belonging seem like quaint notions. To separate, to dissociate, to see something at a remove, these are the ways of knowing to which flights is dedicated. Ros Deneen went along to meet Olga Tokarczuk and her translator Jennifer Croft, and given that flights came out in Polish in 2007, Ros began by asking Olga how her relationship with the book has changed over the past ten years. Frankly speaking, uh, I had to read the book once again before this nomination to recall what's going on in the book, but also to come back to the state of mind when I, I had writing this book. In a way, this book is prophetic because it, this book describing this now and here we, we are living in. But from the other side, there are big lacks in this book, like for instance the, the lack of uh, immigrants, because uh, 10, 11, 12 years ago there is no uh, this problem all over the world like now, so writing this book once again, I would feel honest to, to put this subject somewhere. It's kind of a rootless book, it's about boundaries being crossed, it's about travel rather than destinations. 
Do you think of yourself in light of all that as a as a Polish writer, or is your conception of yourself more international? I belong to Polish culture and Polish language, but I never treated literature as a something which is national and belongs only to one nation as or one one society. Contrary, I always uh, thought that literature is very sophisticated, very deep language to communicate across the borders and cross-culture language. So I'm very attached to the um, Central European culture and literature. This is something special and I think that the rest of the world doesn't know really what's going on there in the culture terms. And of course I'm writing in Polish, so uh, my identity uh, works on many levels. You've said before that there's some you've noticed this kind of Western European tradition of narrative which is linear and perhaps more psychoanalytic. And then there's a Central European tradition which is more organised along principles which are more mythical and religious. Is this something that you feel is is changing or do you think this is sort of entrenching? There are. You, as you are, When you are a good reader, you can uh, find some recognition. I think, for instance, that uh, literature... Uh, written in Central Europe, it's much less concentrated on reality as we define reality on the Western world. So, for instance, the, such a historical facts like uh, fluid, um, changeable borders, like fluidity of, of you know, of uh, people, like uh, wars, instability, violence, and so on has very strong effect on our psyche, of our thinking about the world. So, for instance, also in economical sense, such an unstable region like Central Europe didn't really have strong middle class. And middle class is the reader, really. So it, this is the class which produces literature. Our society was different, and the literature is uh, different. Uh, we have, a, as a Polish, we have a very strong poetry. Poetry was, uh, is always this kind of genre which is light. Uh, it is rather small, condensed. You can express in poetry better than in long, long uh, middle-class novels. Also the trust for reality as a something which is stable and uh, safe is different. So, for instance, in, in the Central European Polish novels, you rarely can find this kind of epic, linear um, narrative, like on the West. You train as a, and, and practice as a psychologist. Mm-hmm. How does this influence your, your writing? Uh, sometimes I I'm, I'm think that it's nothing to do with writing, and sometimes uh, I think that it affected me very much and I am not consciousness, conscious to the end. But, for instance, I remember seminars from my studying when there were lessons that we were uh, taught how to listen people and perhaps I used this um, possibility to to active in active listening of another people I collect stories from another people and um, I don't know I think that I need to to my writing I need a kind of tenderness and empathy that this is the main tool in writing novels I mean in building characters, you you are not able to build character without all those two things, empathy and tenderness. So even if I 
already invent the, the, the figure, the character, and this character has a name and surname and, I don't know, look, body and so on. So it still stays uh, empty. Then you have to put into it a kind, this kind of emotions, like, like, like tenderness, like to the child. So then the, the, the figure, the character is growing and sometimes becoming very independent from me, from the, my, my, my thinking. So you won the prestigious Nike Award in Poland for Flight and then you won it again seven years later for the book of Jacob. And something you said at that stage as a public intellectual caused a great deal of controversy. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened? Uh, Jacob's book, Book Book of Jacob, is a a historical story based on true facts from 18th century. The story is about uh, the small community of Jews uh, who decided to join the, the Catholic Christian community and to to um, adaptate uh, to the rest of the society, and this is very dramatic uh, story. In Poland, nobody knew about uh, those facts, and I did a huge research, and then I realized that there are many such a forgotten stories in our history. And there are, you know, the, the ocean of facts you can use as a writer. So we need desperately new historical story to know in a right way our history, which wasn't only patriotic, you know, romantic collection of facts, but also was very dark and cruel and full of violence and xenophobic and colonial. So when I have my acceptance speech, I just mentioned that we should face with such a dark facts from our history. And I mentioned about three groups of facts. One, it was um, our colonial history. We um, did a, li- a lot of very bad, dark things on the eastern part of Poland, today Ukraine. And the second was that we had also very violent uh, economical system, very close to slavery. And it was very long. We were the, 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 the last country that was uh, abolished. And the third thing was uh, connected with this co-living with uh, uh, Jewish community, uh, like pogroms, like murdering, like uh, this, especially the last um, uh, 20th century stories. So I said that in the television and in the next moment I received so many hates from from the internet and death threats and um, really very violent uh, wishes from from the people but it was on a very stupid and superficial level so I still think that most of those people who who threatened me they wasn't able to to read this book to the end so they didn't really understand what I said in your novel brilliantly named drive your plow over the bones of the dead you have a character who translates one stanza of Blake and comes out with five different versions of that standard that's right so you're very aware of the of the translator's burden um so jennifer croft if i could turn to you for a moment how do you go about capturing the tone of of a work that you're translating so i think it's really different for every work and certainly every author and i work with spanish as well as polish 
the one thing that remains consistent is that for me, at least, it's a really creative process. So I'm making a new, a whole new thing inspired by the work that I'm translating. So I submerge myself in the work that I'm translating, read its climate as much as I can, and then emerge from from that and create something new. And I take a lot of liberties on a word-to-word level um, in order to preserve what I think is the greater good of the novel or the short story or the poem. And to what extent do you seek the author's blessing for everything you do? What, are you more tied to pleasing them or are you more tied to getting it right? Well, that is a tricky question when I have my author sitting right next to me. <laughs> but I hope they're not mutually exclusive, obviously. So I want to get it right, but there is no way to get it right. There is only a way to make it beautiful on my new terms uh, for a target audience that was probably not really considered much during the initial writing of the original. So as I say, it's a whole new thing. And it's something that I work on the writing in English a lot. I go through many, many drafts. It's for me hard to come up with a question for the author during the translation process, to be honest, because what I want is for the English language piece to stand on its own. And I don't want to know the backstory. So if something is slightly mysterious for a Polish reader, I want it to be slightly mysterious for an English language reader too. It happened to me once when I was translating a novel from Spanish that there was a name mentioned that I didn't know who would refer to. And it was mentioned in a list, and I didn't know whether that was important or not. So I spoke to some Argentine friends so as not to go to the author. Not because I didn't want to talk to her, but because, again, I only wanted the English language reader to have access to the same information that the original reader would have had. In the end, I was pressured by my wonderful editor to go to the author, she told me that it was just the name of her childhood dog. And I, for a while, put that in my translation, and only at the very last stages when we had the galleys ready did I realize that that was a complete corruption of the book. And I didn't want, I didn't want the American reader to know that this was based on her, on the author's life, based on this dog. It didn't, it was, that information was not available to, to the Argentine it was important that it not be there because this was a scene in which we needed to remain a little bit outside of what was happening that was important to the plot. So there are a lot of reasons why I abstain from asking the author during the process, although, of course, I want them to read the translation and give me as much feedback as they, as they feel like they can. Olga, how have you found always the process of being translated? I have a kind of test when the people, the readers, ask me the same question, like in Poland, it means that this is a very good translation. <laughs> it's very simple. It's a very good test. Can you tell us briefly about your publisher here, Fitzcarraldo Editions, and how you found one another? I think that we find Fitzcarraldo by you, Jennifer. When Jennifer decided to translate this book, started to looking for publisher and uh, it was quite difficult. Yeah, I looked um, for a long time in the US, which is obviously where I'm from and where I have sometimes lived at least, um, although I've 
been in other places for translation purposes. It took a while because people were reluctant to take the risk of an unconventional narrative um, that is as ambitious as Flights is. I published excerpts in a number of American magazines and I wrote about Olga and went to events and so on and so forth. And I was always look, looking for exciting new publishing houses and exciting new journals. And I don't remember now, it was a f few years ago, but I don't, I think the sequence was that I found out about the White Review first. I may have found out about it from attending an event in Paris that Jacques Testard was present at. Then, of course, they started Fitzcarraldo, and I was just really struck by the list they had. I sent Jacques a sample and a report about flights, I think, basically, when Fitzcarraldo started. And he read it. He took a while to get back to me, but then he immediately responded. Once he had read the manuscript fully, he, he was really interested, and, and then we just had to do the negotiations over the contract and, and so forth. And since then, it's been a really fruitful partnership, I think. And finally, and this isn't a question that I would usually ask, but it came up in your acceptance speech when you took the Man Booker International Prize home last night. Could you tell us about the earrings mm -hmm. that you're wearing yesterday? <laughs> Breaking news, my <laughs> earrings. <laughs> Coming here to London, I took very old earrings I had and they are 30 years old and first time when I came here to London it was 1987 and I was a student and I came here to to learn English and to work and I work uh, in a hotel as a chambermaid and for the first uh, money I bought this uh, beautiful very small earrings and then I realized that it will be good lucky sign to take these earrings today when I am coming back to London as a writer. Um, Shortlisted to the one of the, the biggest, the most important uh, literary award. So, and it, it worked, as we see. <laughs> that was Olga Tokarczuk and Jennifer Croft speaking to Ros Deneen. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Few scriptures have been alternately as revered and reviled as the Quran. So says Eric Ormsby this week in his review of four books about the text's translation and transmission over the ages. On the one hand, it contains sections that are confusing, illogical and morally questionable to the modern mind. Slay the polytheists wherever you find them, as Surah 9 verse 5 goes. On the other, it's heralded by many Muslims as the compilation of the inimitable, beautiful words that ultimately come from God. To some on that basis, it is literally untranslatable. The language of Quranic Arabic has a purity that cannot be transmuted. Only the meanings can be transferred to a different tongue. That leaves the field open, you might think, for all sorts of cultural wranglings and misunderstandings. To help us understand this more, Eric Ormsby joins us on the line. Eric, hello. Hello, how are you? Very good. Um, perhaps we can start at the very beginning. Can you explain the structure of this Arabic text? How is the Quran put together and why does that make it difficult in, in some respects? Well, the, the structure of the Quran does add to the difficulty apart from the contents and the language. It has 114 chapters or surahs as they're called in Arabic, which just means fences around them. And the order is uh, odd to a, to a non-Muslim reader because... They go from the longest surah to the shortest. There's no narrative structure, except for the first surah, which is a kind of uh, op- the opening surah, which fulfills the role of the Lord's Prayer, let's say, okay. in Christianity, kind of a universal prayer. But after that, it begins with the, the second surah, is the longest in the book, and it proceeds to the 114th, which is the shortest. I mean, it's not a strict, rigid order. So it doesn't follow it absolutely. Uh, but it reflects, I think, something about how it was put together by the early scholars. It wasn't put together in the in the usual sense, as, say, the Bible is, beginning with Genesis and ending with uh, Revelations. It seems, at first sight, to, to an unfamiliar reader, it seems haphazard and chaotic, and it jumps from one topic to another. I mean, at one moment they're talking about inheritance, and another they're there, there are these sublime hymns to God, uh, sometimes side by side. So it presents a kind of confusing and apparently haphazard aspect. But it's one of the um, virtues of these two, at least, of these books that I reviewed, that they try to show that there is a structure in it. It's not obvious. You describe it as a circular rather than a linear book, which I found quite interesting. I'd never really thought about that and and the kind of the challenges that that might pose to uh, a non-Muslim reader. Yes, well, that's true, I think. Uh, I, I don't know if a Muslim would agree, but that's how it has always struck me. In fact... This might seem uh, impious, but in some ways it reminds me of Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. You know, uh, there's not a, a straight narrative structure, um, and you can really uh, open it at any point. And Muslims do, of course. They read it in discrete sections uh, to complete a, a whole reading of it. They don't read it in a, in a, in a linear fashion as, as we might read the Bible uh, or some other scripture. Um, so there's no, you know, it, it's not... Um, uh, you don't have to have read something previous to understand something later. You know, it's a, uh, all of a piece in one sense, but it presents the aspect 
of, of something fragmentary too at the same time, and that may reflect the way it was collected because, of course, at first it was purely oral and held in memory, and um, according to the tradition anyway, it was written down on palm leaves and the shoulder bones of animals, as one of the traditions says, so that um, it was only compiled or put together in a book form, in a written book form, uh, much later. Uh, according to tradition, it was done under the reign of the third caliph, Uthman. Uh, scholars now think it was actually a longer process than that and didn't really take its final shape until the late, uh, the end of the 7th century. I'm interested in this notion of, of its inimitability and its untranslatability, uh, because you draw the distinction between, some people believe you're not, allowed, you're not able to translate this Quranic Arabic directly, you're simply, it's possible to translate the meanings. And I'm not sure in my own mind how I can actually distinguish between those two ideas, because in, in, in lots of senses, all translation is merely the transfiguring of the meaning of the original text, isn't it? Yes, well, that's about all you can do. And, uh, uh, of course, the meanings are are, very, <laughs> are often very disputed. Uh, but it's not just a question of the literal meaning of the verses. According to Muslims and this doctrine of inimitability, it's the language itself which conveys the message uh, in terms of its sounds, its shapes on the page, uh, it's the way it's recited, so that you know, we're only getting in a translation really half or less of what a Muslim would get from hearing it or reading it. Um, I know this sounds like a strange concept in a way because, uh, you know, we don't look to the scripture necessarily for beauty, um, although something like the King James Bible is, of course, very beautiful. Yeah. Uh, but the beauty is a component of it. It's an essential component of it, and that adheres, of course, in the Quranic Arabic, which is a very special kind of Arabic, a very high-flown Koine, you know, or common language of the time, and um, for a Muslim, that language is part of the embodiment of the meaning, and of course, that can't be conveyed. You mentioned the King James Bible just there. I, I find it quite surprising that a religion that has to adapt to keep people engaged, in a sense, hasn't hasn't had its own version of a, a King James translation. Or is there no sort of equivalent of you know, in in the Christian faith, we have these countless renderings to make it more accessible for children for you know modern readers things like that has there been nothing similar really no not to my knowledge uh because it's 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 paramount that it be read in the original language even if it's not fully understood that's the true quran and this is the subject of bruce lawrence's book of course he distinguishes between the quran k-o-r-a-n as it has been known in english and the quran as it's known in arabic and tries to show that it's really quite a different history, you know, to the so-called English or translated Quran, uh, had a totally different uh, course in history and uh, uh, is really quite distinct from the original. Not, not that it's, not that the, the translations betray the original and their meaning, but that they only convey a partial sense of the original scripture. Well, and how disputable are, are, are these um, are parts of the Quran? I'm interested because it, seems, it strikes me that you can quote various surahs which to the modern ear sound barbaric or incomprehensible. Yes. And, and I quoted one which you mentioned yourself, the idea of slaying polytheists whenever you yes. find them. Are they that's one of the milder verses. Yeah, are they, <laughs> and are they disputed texts? Are they texts that they oh, yes. How are they disputed? Are they disputed that they shouldn't be there, or the meaning is different? Or uh, some, uh, you know, there's this principle uh, in Quranic studies that the early Muslim scholars, not Western scholars, formulated, which is abrogation. 
that some verses uh, canceled out earlier ones. And that, that, of course, is quite disputed among Muslims. As excellent as these four books are, they really say very little about the tradition of exegesis or interpretation. And, of course, when Western readers want to try to understand Islam and pick up an English translation of the Quran, whatever it may be, they're not getting the full impact because, of course, these, these scriptural texts were accompanied by voluminous commentaries over the centuries, often widely differing, not just because they were, say, Sunni or Shiite, but uh, among themselves, uh, so that you're getting a very partial view when you just look at the naked text, as it were. Um, and you uh, see, Muhammad Abdul Halim was written one of these books called Exploring yes. the Quran, and he says the meanings of the Quran have been woefully misinterpreted by Muslim extremists as well as by Western polemicists. Oh, yes. Uh, what's, the, what's the basis for the misinterpretation? Is, it the, a dis, is that simply just a, a euphemism for disagreement with some of the exegesis, or is it a failure to understand the original text? Because this seems to get to the heart of the often disputed area of the extent to which Islam is a martial religion, a religion where there are problematic ideas hardwired into it, or is it a religion which has been interpreted by later people in a way that makes it so? That's a complex question, but nowadays I would say that it's the latter case uh, because, of course, the people who, the extremists, uh, both Muslims and anti-Muslims, <laughs> pluck verses out of the, out of the text without any uh, regard for the context or the surrounding verses or the entire text itself in which they occur. And I think that's one of the things he's, uh, Abdul Halim, is working very hard to combat. I'm not sure that it'll have any practical effect because such people don't concern themselves with those things. Uh, but he makes a very convincing case, I mean, he, in great detail and very accessibly, uh, to show how these things have been warped. Uh, of course, his, his approach is somewhat apologetic. He's himself a Muslim. He knows the Quran by heart. Uh, but he's also a very sophisticated scholar. <clears throat> and I, I find his arguments quite convincing. Uh, I'm not sure I'm fully convinced, but uh, so he you, certainly makes a good case. Do you believe, following him, that it is possible to, you know, and, and as you say, the, the surah that you, you mentioned, the, the polytheists being slain, yes. is, a, is a relatively mild one. There'll be, there'll be stronger ones. Is it the argument that it is possible to contextualize parts of the text in such a way that those statements are no longer abhorrent, they're no longer morally questionable. It's the context can rescue them. Oh, yes, I think so. But you see, that's the very problem that most traditional Orthodox Muslims uh, reject the notion of historical or social context, because after all, they see this as the absolute immutable word of God. And so what does it matter what the historical context was from their point of view? Uh, that's one of the big stumbling blocks, not only for Westerners who try to understand the Quran, but for Muslim reformers, and they rightly see, I think, that the fundamental issue in any possible reform of Islam lies in the approach to the Quran. They've been bending their efforts in that direction. Of course, they've suffered the consequences in many cases uh, because it's absolutely forbidden to do that. You know, it would be as though a Christian would take a verse like, Slaves obey your masters uh, from the New Testament and say, you know, this is immutable and absolute and can't be subjected to... Uh, nuance or, or qualification. Well, that seems to be an, an intrinsic problem in putting your faith in any text at all. You wouldn't read a book and say its context could never be changed, it could only ever have one meaning, and yet that's precisely what we do, not just with Islam, but with all sorts of religions. With your literary criticism hat on, Eric, it, there's an argument that that's always going to be a failed venture, isn't it? Yes, I'm, that's what we think, but of course, 
a traditional Muslim, and I don't mean by that to suggest that they're unsophisticated or primitive kind of uh, readers of the Quran. They just take as their basic premise that this is the immutable, eternal word of God. And if you start with that premise, of course, you're going to come to very different conclusions uh, from any uh, conclusions by a modern textual scholar. That's really the problem. And until that is addressed by Muslims in a convincing way, I don't think there's much chance of change. Uh, there are there are signs. I mean, women have begun publishing commentaries on the Quran, and that's quite a new thing. And, of course, their readings are often very different. Uh, but the uh, preserve of meaning, if you will, uh, has been held very fiercely by the traditional scholars, both Sunni and Shiite. And they alone are the ones who are uh, capable of interpreting what the text really says. What's fascinating about, about talking to you and, and, and this piece is that it's the... the, the the linguistic aspect of it brings to bear all sorts of ethical, political, theological oh, ideas yes. that, that, that follow yes. on from it. Eric, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. It's interesting, isn't it? I, 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 I have the same problem with, with Christianity. Actually, I've had lots of debates about if you, if you regard the word of the Bible as immutable and it was written two and a half thousand years ago, or you regard the, the, the words of the Quran as immutable and it was written 1,500 years ago, whatever it was, that was not a time where I would take prescription on how to behave about anything. I wouldn't build my house based on uh, what people said then or plumb my house, or mm. I wouldn't believe in, in lots of theories of the, the nature of the world and the nature of science mm. based on those. So why would I possibly begin to use that immutably now? I find that as a, as a, as a concept intellectually utterly yeah. insurmountable. Why would, I, yeah. why would I take lessons as immutable from that period in the respect of religion why I wouldn't in respect of anything else well I mean I can't I can't argue with you there but only to say that people you're do. not a believer I'm right. not a believer and something happens where you make a leap and what's interesting I think what's nice about the piece that there's something in the language that that is mm. incantatory is probably the exactly. word I was well, kind I mean, of that's, grasping that's, for that's and having spoken to our um, Middle Eastern editor about this at length Robert Irwin you you get a sense of this incantatory uh, quality right across the literature, not uh, and not the necessarily the the faith literature, but just all of the literature about this kind of incantatory elevation to something, or, yeah. or something changes at some point in the reading or the listening. And whether and, what, and that's very hard to transmit across a different culture. I think so. Yeah, interesting I stuff. So. I think I think we would need a whole other podcast though to um, let's to get... level with contemporary feminist translations of the Quran. I would like to hear. Uh, more about we should which, commission um, a piece on that yeah okay we'll do and then that. the best Qurans online all right go and on. then there's a graphic version oh, American Quran all right th- after this you, you <laughs> go and actually do that I'm spiraling what, okay. commission that piece commission that piece now <laughs> uh, that's all we have time for this week our thanks go to Ben Markovitz Eric Ormsby Ros and the author she was talking to which I've been struggling with the pronunciation Olga of Tukarchuk. Olga Tukarchuk it's so easy what's wrong with me <laughs> Olga Tukarchuk and her translator Jennifer Croft This week in the paper, we have a special on writing about borders. We also cover feminist writing for girls and have an extract from the book by American journalist Seymour Hirsch, among much more. Subscribe to the TLS by googling TLS subscriptions. Next week, we're not here, are we? Either of us. We're not, neither. We're not. Uh, And the subject's going to be this, early modern fashions. Lucy Dallas and Rosdenim will be accepting that particular hospital pass from us. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.